Well, we we created a show in 2006. Uh, a work colleague and I yeah. called Inside PR, which yeah. was, you know, a half hour weekly show about uh, the public relations industry profession. Mm-hmm. So we did like 250 episodes of that <clears throat> every week. And is that that's not going anymore? It's still going. Oh, it's still going. Yeah, I, I I hung up the mic after about two hundred and fifty episodes. Okay. And my uh, nothing more to say. Or well, yeah, that and I was by that time I was podcasting my novels, and and uh, you've done that with all your novels. I have. Okay. I have. And is that before they are released? Uh, they overlap the release. Okay. So I start. Before it comes out, but I don't yeah. finish the novel until after it's come out. And you literally are reading the book. I read the book, so it's the audio version of the book. It's a okay. Uh, and McClellan and Stewart has allowed me to do that, and uh, so I've done that for all all six of my novels. Wow! So you could listen to Poles Apart. I could listen to that. Yeah, that'd be on iTunes. Yeah, it's a free download. I don't. Oh, okay. Me. All right, I'll 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 check that out because there's still I think three <clears throat> books that I haven't read. You've done six, right? Yes. Yeah. So I've only read three. I've watched <clears throat> one. I've, oh, you watched the TV read, series? Yeah. <laughs> and so there, so I found out about <clears throat> the TV series. I think I knew of you because <clears throat> uh, I've attended PodCamp in the past. Oh, yeah. And I think you've recorded one of the Inside yeah. PR Yeah, there. we did do that. Yeah, that's right. And uh, you guys also had that meetup that I loved. Oh, yeah, Third Tuesdays. Day. Third Tuesdays. Yeah, yeah. I loved those. Yeah, they're terrific. I don't know why we don't do them anymore. Yeah. Well, we will probably do them again at some point. But, and uh, so I, I met two buddies, one of them who uh, is, is now a good friend of mine, Fleet, Dave Fleet. Oh, and uh, Dave worked for them. Yeah, for, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, oh. and, uh, and I think Jeremy also worked for them. Yeah, you? Jeremy Wright did too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so uh, so Fleet is, is, is a good friend now. Oh, there you go. Okay, and so well. I think through, through him, I found out, I saw a tweet or a Facebook post back in the day. Uh, about the TV show, right? And I go, wait, some some Toronto guy that I'm two or three people removed from right. has a TV show. Yeah, <laughs> and I watched the series. Yeah, and I, and I thought I thought it was great. Yeah, it, yeah, it was, yeah, it was good. It I was mean, funny. It was yeah, there was a great lead actor. Yeah, he was terrific. I think he was. He great. won the Canadian Screen Award that year. Oh, for, did he? Yeah, eh? For best actor. And yeah. then uh, Professor McClintock. Yeah. Yeah, so it was what, also great. So when I read the, what's the second book? The High Road. The High Road. So yeah. as I'm reading The High Road, you're seeing that I have those two characters yeah, yeah. in my head. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And so and so that was that was fantastic. Live from Pacific Junction Hotel, Girth Radio in session. I'm Terry Fallis. Born and raised in Toronto, and uh, the author of uh, six novels and number seven on the way. Okay, uh, that was going to be one of my questions. Ah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> what can, can, can I ask? Is it is it a um, is it related to any of the other books? Is it a no? It's a standalone novel. Oh, okay, uh, it's coming. It is uh, tentatively entitled "If at First You Succeed," mm-hmm. and it's a. Uh, it deals with an issue that I think a lot of people deal with in their lives and that they, we sometimes don't plan our careers. We fall into a career yeah. and we end up doing reasonably well at it. And by all the standard measures of success, we are doing well. We're getting promoted. We're getting mm-hmm. raises. We're getting headhunted. Uh, and 20 years pass and all of a sudden you realize, you know, I'm not sure this is what I was supposed to be doing all this time. Mm. So it's it's a, a novel that deals in my typically 
extreme way yeah. with uh, how do we uh, do what our real, our true calling is, and is it ever too late to to start doing something else, and that that sort of thing. So okay, but it's framed in a in a story as I usually do it. So how long does it take you to come up with the idea, and then start writing, and then like your finished product? How long is that? It's about uh, an eighteen month process, I would say. Okay. Uh, I, I have been on an 18-month publishing schedule. Okay. Uh, I started out at two years, and then you know every two years I'd have a new novel, and then for the last three novels we did 18 months in between. Okay. And we think that might be a little. Is that too much? A little tight. Okay. Yeah, that it may, it may be cutting off uh, some of the sales of the previous novel if you oh. release the next one too soon yeah so we've we've gone back to uh to two years so it's about a 18 month two-year process but i you know i carry an idea around in my head for mm -hmm. months at a time as it steeps and ferments and yeah. turns into something and and eventually i'll start to bring it out onto paper into notes and then a chapter map and then i'm a big outliner i'm an engineer by academic training yes. so I, I need a blueprint if I'm going to build something. Okay. So I have a very detailed chapter-by-chapter chapter outline. And then the very last thing that I do is write the manuscript. So I'm not writing until the last four months of that 18-month process. Really? And so do you get what, you know, I've heard of this thing called writer's block. Mm. Um, because you've got this outline, Everything flows for you after I've that? I've never had writer's block okay. because I don't start writing until I have ah. a chapter-by-chapter chapter outline in front of me that is usually between 60 and 85 pages long. Wow. So the whole story is essentially written in bullet point form. Yeah. And then I, I take that uh, and I let that guide me and I write the manuscript. So I don't have writer's block ever in that sense. What mm. I occasionally run into is what I call story block earlier in the process yeah. when I'm trying to figure out how to get from plot point C to plot point D, uh, I sometimes run into barriers there that simply require time and patience and a sense of confidence that if I wait long enough, a solution will present itself. And that has always been the case thus far. Yeah. It seems when I, I just finished this last night, Pulls Apart, um, very timely today, like this book is very timely. Yes, it was perhaps slightly ahead of its time in yeah. that it came out, uh, that's two books ago. So it came out in 2015, I think. Yeah, okay. 2015. So Yeah. Because <clears throat> um, as I was reading this, everything sort of came back like, the you know, Me Too, uh, Time's Up, and, and all of these. I'm going, wow, like this is perfect. Right. Uh, for and, and it was interesting, the um, almost the conflict that the main character has in terms of, the way he was writing and putting his feet on on the on the bolt um, of of what what ends up being a uh, a high, well, how how would I phrase it? It's not it's not necessary. Would we call it a strip club? Well, yeah, I, it, sort of a, a, a gentleman's club, gentleman's a high club, end, high end gentleman's club. club. Yes, yes. Um, and, and how he, you know, gets these 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 um, inspiration <laughs> or vibes, you might say. vibes, literally, That's right? Yeah, literally vibes. <laughs> Uh, you know, to to write the, these essays uh, from a feminist point of view, um, and then he ends up befriending, you know, three people at least who who are mm. employees of this place. Right. Um, and it was, it was interesting to see that um, to see that dichotomy. 
you know. Well, you know, it, it's an issue that has been of interest and concern uh, to me for a very long time. Uh, the you know the narrator in there has a feminist awakening while at university. Mm-hmm active in the national student movement, which is among the most autobiographical pieces I've ever written, because that was my experience. Okay. I was very active in the national student movement back in the early 80s, mm-hmm. and I had a, a feminist awakening of sorts, as odd as it is for someone who hails from the most privileged demographic in the history of human civilization, <laughs> the middle-aged white male. <laughs> well, I wasn't middle-aged then, you but, no. <laughs> but, but it it just struck me as the most pervasive, pernicious uh, social inequity that we have. And hmm. so I latched onto that issue then. And it's always, you can see it lurking in the undergrowth of my other novels. The issue is there. Yeah. In the first two that uh, you mentioned, yes. there's a feminist, you know, the one of the characters' wife, wife is, a, is a feminist theorist. And That's right. So uh, it's been an issue for me for a long time. So I knew I was going to write a feminist novel, a yeah. pro-feminist novel. But mm-hmm. how do you, how do you do that? Yeah, uh, and you just ha- I just had to come up with a sort of a wild and wacky story that would have a bit of humor and heart in it, uh, and still allow me to explore some of the issues of uh, of gender inequality. So I hope I achieved that in that novel. But it was. Uh, it was an interesting process for me. Yeah. Um, I need to ask this. How do you go from studying engineering uh, in in uh, in university at McMaster to to getting into politics? Right. Yeah, because that was sort of your – that was your first job. It was in politics, Correct. wasn't it? That's right. Yeah. So how does that happen? Well, it was uh, – my interest in politics – had always been there, uh, but I was studying engineering, which I also was really interested in. Okay. Uh, but I got heavily involved with student politics on campus and uh, ended up serving on on the council, the student council at university for you know five years. I was vice president of the students' union. I was speaker of the assembly, and then I, wow. when I already had my degree, I ran. Uh, for and was elected president of the students' union, which was a full-time job. Oh, so wow. my last year at university, I already had my my engineering degree, and I I stayed a a, a sixth year mm-hmm. as president, which is what really kind of put the nail in the coffin of my engineering career and moved me it. squarely into the realm of politics. And I left my my job as president when it finished and went right into a job on Jean Chrétien's staff on the 84 leadership campaign. So, Was there ever a discussion with with parents about, uh, listen, Terry, <laughs> we just forked over? Yeah. No, luckily, the, I managed to underwrite my, my university. Nice. Uh, I had lucky to have good summer jobs but no they you know they were very very supportive and i think they saw what a what a, a pivotal experience student politics was for me mm-hmm. uh, and how it kind of shaped me and i hope in a positive way yeah and i think gave me some leadership skills that i've leaned on for the rest of my career such as it has been uh so they were they were quite happy uh if I was happy, they were happy, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So Best Laid Plans in the High Road, those were your first two books? Correct. Um, which which to me, and understanding your background, would you know lend me to think, okay, starting with Jean Chrétien all the way up until you you, you left, you know, working, uh, I think you went federal, then you went provincial. That's right. Um, 
there must a lot of this stuff is probably found in your books. Like I could read that. It's really, does this stuff actually happen? <laughs> um, how how much of of those two books um, were things that you experienced? Well, a lot of the a lot of the books, I, a lot of what goes on in those books is. I mean, I wanted it to be and intended it to be an accurate, a relatively accurate portrayal of how we practice politics in this country. Mm-hmm. Some of the characters have been torqued a little bit for sure. for comic effect, <laughs> but in general, uh, that is how we do it. That's how we practice politics, which is what I was trying to illuminate in the novel, yeah. and more importantly, further to illuminate a different path we might take, mm-hmm. uh, so that our democracy is healthier than than it is now. Yeah, and I kind of embodied that in the character of. Of you know the reluctant accidental member of parliament, yeah. uh, Angus McClintock. So tell me, it's it's interesting because as as I'm reading, um, so I, I watched Best Laid Plans, but I I read The High Road, and like you said, he's he's relu- he's a reluctant politician, but he doesn't he doesn't toe the party line. Um, he says this is what this is what I'm going to do. For the country, this is what you know. I want to make decisions for the country, and I hope the people in my um, in my ward um, appreciate that and know that. I want to tell them up front. It, right. it might it might hurt, you know, our neighborhood here, but this is going to be this is these are decisions that I want to make that are going to be good for the country. Um, and and so as as I'm reading that, we've got all this stuff happening in politics where I, I think as as a result of um, you know social media, as as a result of people being able to. Uh, consume media all the time. Um, a, a lot of these things on on how politicians make decisions and and what they say and what they do, good and bad. Um, you know, we look at it through through a microscope. Right. Um, again, I as I was reading that, I said this is a book for today. Right. You know, people should be reading the High Road today, uh, not just because it's a great and fun book to read, but there's lessons from from the professor that that you know we could I think learn. Yeah, I, I think I think that's right. I, I wanted him to represent uh, a better way uh, of governing, a better yeah. uh, a better approach to uh, our democracy, where you do put the national interest first. You put uh, the sort of your own personal local interest, political interest second. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes that means that the voters in your own riding may <laughs> may not like all the decisions you mm-hmm. make or the dis- or the policies you support. But if they understand that they are made in the interests of the broader the broader good, the yeah. public interest, the national interest, you hope that they will accept that as part of their responsibility of living in one of the most advanced democracies uh, in the world. But, yeah. Do you have any solutions? Like I look at the system seems to be broken from a number of angles. Off the top, I would say most politicians, if not all politicians, have a four a four year view. Yeah, precisely. And they don't want to make decisions that affect it in ten years. Like, what can I do between now and four years to keep my job? Yes. Rather than, like you said, what can we do that the next generation things are going to be better then. Right. Now, you raise a very good point. It's one of the issues that I examined in those first two novels mm-hmm. is the four-year electoral horizon. Yeah. And many of the challenges we confront as a nation are not going to be resolved in four years. Sure. There's a much longer horizon to address them. 
And it really takes strong leadership to persuade the voters that, yes, we're doing some things now that are going to be you know, tough for us to, to take, but we're doing them so that we can have a better, a better future. That takes real leadership and real guts and real political resolve. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it takes an electorate that is prepared to embrace that approach to governing. Yeah. And we probably don't have enough on either side of that equation yet to make that happen. Yeah. Uh, there are too many incentives to in essence, buy the voters off with their own money as you approach an election. Uh, And, you know, so I'm not laboring under the illusion that this is an easy solution. Mm -hmm. But that is one of the problems we're dealing with is that we have issues that are going to take a long time to resolve. And progress is going to be incremental in the early years and tough to point to as a sign of great success that you should reelect me because we've done this. Yeah. <laughs> so it is a challenge. I think we have to educate the voters as much as we have to re-engineer how we practice politics. How much would you blame the media? You know, I don't actually blame the media. Um, I think it's easy to because... I think they are the messenger and Mm -hmm. they write stories that generally uh, they're writing accurately. (laughs) They are writing and reporting on things that are happening. Uh, I think the way to change the stories coming out of the media is to change the way we are governing governing ourselves Mm. and to stop giving them scandal and deceit and duplicity uh, and the other hallmarks of politics as we practice it now and give them something more positive to write about. I think you saw a shift when in the early, in the first year of the the Justin Trudeau mandate where Mm -hmm. he arrived as sort of a a breath of of fresh air Mm -hmm. and said all the right things. And I think did a lot of very good things early on. He's, I think he's finding now that governing is, is really hard uh, and there have been a couple of stumbles along the way, which we knew there would be. Everyone is sure. is human, uh, but I, I think media gave him a pretty a pretty good review, pretty positive coverage in the early stages because he was doing things that seemed yeah. different from the previous regime. Now the gloves are off. It seems. Yeah, well, and it's not the media's fault. I, not I, not I necessarily. Say. I mean, yeah, yeah they we've you know the liberals uh, and I. I mean, I. I don't speak of them as separate for me. I, I am a liberal. I always will be a liberal. Uh, but yeah, we've put our foot in it a few times. And uh, it's almost inevitable that uh, sure. these kind of mistakes are, go- are going to be made. It's how you recover from them, own up to them, mm-hmm. and pass through <laughs> yeah. that, that really, I think, defines how the regime will be, uh, will be viewed. The reason I bring up the media is that it's almost like it's almost like psychology, you know. For example, the Ford brothers, um, you know, use the you know folks, and and they use these these things that galvanize a, a certain segment of the population, right? You know, whether it is talking about uh, abortion, or whether it is talking to you know whether it's talking to sound bites, um, like we're going to clean up city hall or whatever the case may be, without having any solid plans and solid insights in, into what they would do and what it would mean. Um, 
And on the flip side, the media is looking to, yeah, they're looking to report, but they're also looking, I think, they're looking at how can we continue to generate revenue, uh, which for, you know, legacy media, which still dominates, um, yeah. is, is based on eyeballs and clicks and things like that. Right. And it's not necessarily to, you know, have a dissertation on something that's long term. It's it's about, you know, how can we get people to come and continue coming you know, let's let's have salacious titles and so right. on. Yeah, there there certainly is a sort of a financial imperative for them to write in a way that uh, that gets readers and viewers and listeners yeah. to their to their media outlet. Uh, so yeah, I mean the old phrase: if it bleeds, it leads, and and scandal is always a yeah you know a great driver of media coverage and people buying newspapers. So that's been you know. Twas ever thus. It's always been that way in the media, um, but I, I, you know, I, and certainly the Ford brothers. That's a good example. I mean, that was politics by sloganeering. Yes, right? I don't think yes. they really. I mean, they just had to say the word "gravy train." That's right. That was their slogan. And and the voters, who probably have not given a lot of thought to municipal politics, you know, I, I say that with some trepidation. But I think people tend to follow provincial and and federal politics probably more, mm -hmm. even though the municipal politics is closer to us. But you know, I'm not sure there is a gravy train, and all of a sudden yeah. they talk about the gravy train, and everyone buys into that concept that there is one, mm -hmm. and you know, we end up with the government that that we deserve because. Mm. We don't take a critical look at the issues that are actually being placed before us, which takes some time. I mean, it's not easy. The issues seem to be more complex today than they were, you know, 50, 60 years ago. Back then, we could debate about the Canadian flag and what it should be. Yeah. I mean, uh, everyone could have a view on that. Now, we're trying to, you know, we're trying to get the public to consider what's a fair tax policy look like or how do we... Mm. How do we develop uh, a sound industrial policy that will keep us competitive in the face of an increasingly interdependent world? And those are issues that are complex yes. and difficult. A lot, it's a lot to ask a voter sure. to develop a view on, on those issues. So it, it's, it's not easy. And the media can help on that because they can uh, they can you know do praises on those policy issues and help. Canadians understand them. Um, so tell me about your experience with um, the 1984 leadership campaign with Jean Chrétien. Oh, that was that was that, so that was an fun. unsuccessful. Right? It was uns yeah. well unsuccessful. Yes, at the time uh, it was. Uh, I was president of the students union, and I had decided that I was uh, a liberal, mm -hmm. both a small L liberal and deciding to become a large L liberal, yeah. in the face of several generations of conservative family alliance. Oh. <laughs> yes. I was the uh, the first uh, liberal in our family. But right. <laughs> uh, I decided that family, as I said in the novel, actually, family tradition is one reason to be a conservative, just not a very good one. Okay. <laughs> so I, I, you know, I researched the political ideologies and discovered, no, actually, I think I'm a liberal. Yeah. And I, I wrote to the Jean Chrétien campaign. Oh, wow. And said, look, I'm, my term is finishing here at McMaster, and uh, I'm happy to come in and lick envelopes and mark voter lists and volunteer yeah. on the campaign. Yeah. And I think it was because I was president of the Students' Union 
that they said, hey, would you be interested in, in a job? Oh, wow. Because <laughs> they were looking for somebody who was not tainted by party politics, who didn't oh. have a lot of baggage in the youth wing of the party. And mm -hmm. I had have had no involvement in the party. So, so I went for an interview and lo and behold, I got the job. So nice. I walked out of my McMaster and into a full-time job on Chrétien's leadership campaign. So I got to- What were you doing? I was, was Ontario Youth Chair. Okay. Which meant that I was responsible for the youth delegates. Okay. So I was- tracking who they were and we were doing events and we were sending them information. We were writing some policy mm -hmm. uh, papers uh, and we were monitoring what everyone else was doing. There were youth debates that we would go to and oh, participate wow. in. And uh, and then when Mr. Kretschner would come to town mm -hmm. uh, on part of his national tour, we would do a bunch of events and take him to meetings. And I got to hang out with him a little bit and came to know him pretty well, which was uh, an extraordinary thrill for... Sure. I mean, I, I seriously would have done all of that for free, but they actually were paying me they to were. do it. Said, <laughs> it was, uh, you know, for someone who was a bit of a political junkie for his first role in politics, you yeah. couldn't have written a, a better script. Sure. Unless, actually, it could have been better. He sure. could have won that. He could have won. He that would have been won. better. But John Turner <laughs> was the, uh, you know, the clear air apparent... And we went to the convention. And as is so often the case with politics, when you throw yourself, particularly as a young person, into a, a campaign, you tend to ignore all of the clear evidence that we were not going to win. Mm -hmm. uh, and politics is partly uh, practicing the mass delusion of your own followers so sure. that they will keep going. Yeah, And I remember being shocked and dismayed and and really sad when he lost even though most people knew he was going to lose weeks before the campaign wow. but i didn't know who was the prime minister at that time uh uh pierre trudeau was was president oh. was prime minister okay and uh, at that convention the friday night of the convention i was there uh and there's pierre trudeau one of my heroes giving his farewell mm. speech which was very powerful, very moving, very inspirational. Uh, and to be in the room when he did that was a, is a great wow. memory uh, for me. I can imagine, yeah. And then the vote was the next day. And, yeah. Uh, and Kretschian lost, Turner won. But fortunately for me, uh, in Turner's bid to bring together all of the competing factions in the party, because mm -hmm. a leadership race can be quite divisive in a party. Uh, absolutely. He invited... A few people from each other camp mm -hmm. to come to Ottawa to work on the campaign and to work mainly for his, his in his in his cabinet for cabinet ministers. So I actually got a phone call two days later while I was still you know drying my tears from losing. <laughs> and 24 hours later, I'd moved to Ottawa to work for one of Turner's cabinet ministers. Yeah, uh, and that was my start on Parliament Hill. And that was that was a short-lived. <laughs> it was very short-lived. Was it how many? Was it months or it years? Was, Couple of years. It uh, was the middle of June, and he called the election pretty quickly thereafter. The election was September the fourth, mm -hmm. nineteen eighty-four. Wow! So from That's June to months. to September, wow. we were in in power in government. Yeah, uh, and I I worked for my minister for the whole campaign. We traveled the country, uh, and he was one of the forty liberals who was reelected. 
we were pretty well decimated in that. Wow. That was the Mulroney And that was sweep. Brian Mul Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And he won. So I stayed with him in opposition okay. uh, for a year, at least another year on Parliament Hill. So. And then you went to Ottawa. No, that Sorry, was you Ottawa. Went to, you went to I came Toronto. Back to, you went I came Ontario. back to Toronto. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I, I, federal politics was my first love, but I, I came back to Toronto because the Peterson government had just come to power. Okay. And the chance to work for the finance minister on his political mm. staff, Bob Nixon, Robert Nixon, uh, rather than, you know, was more attractive, even though it was provincial politics, sure. than working as one of the 40 yeah. opposition members in Ottawa, mm. where we couldn't have that much influence. Sure. So I returned to Toronto and uh, and worked for the finance minister, which was on his political staff. I was his legislative assistant. Okay. So it was a, a, that was a great experience. Nice. What did you, so finance minister, that, I mean, there you guys were in charge of... The economy. I mean, that's what that, that, that. So that's what we think, right? I yes. don't know if it's true or not, but you know, um, well, tax policy and, and all that. All stuff. of that. That that yeah. is true. Although finance ministers uh, are, you know, they ought not to claim responsibility okay. for the uh, the economy because that can come back to bite you. Sure. And you always see this when the job numbers go up, when the stock stock yeah. market is strong, when inflation comes down. Finance ministers have a tendency to say, this government has made this happen. Yeah. And then they have to wear that when the numbers start going down. So yeah. you can't have it both ways. If you influence it that much, you are responsible for it going down as well. So, and Bob Nixon always said, you know, we are helping, trying to capitalize on what economic, economic activity there is here, but we're not claiming responsibility for it. Yeah. So, uh, so he he was very uh, thoughtful and funny and smart and was a great guy to to work for. Nice. <clears throat> I was listening to a a Freakonomics podcast episode. I don't know, maybe a year or two. I think just before uh, down in the states, Trump got elected, um, and they were the question they were posing was, you know, how, does, it, does it really matter who's president? Mm. I don't know if you if you listened to that episode. Or I haven't, but I I know the theory that you're, yeah. yeah, and and so I'm I'm curious. You know your thoughts. Does it mm. does it matter to the economy? Let's talk about the economy specifically. Um, whether um, it's a conservative, Republican, <clears throat> liberal, Democrat, NDP. Does it does it does it matter in the in the grand scheme of things? You think? I think it can matter. Okay. I don't think it always does. Okay. If you're moving from a you know a red conservative government to a centrist liberal government there's not a lot that separates the economic policies of those two regimes or there might not be i think where it can have an effect is if you have outliers who arrive when bob ray's government came to power at queen's park the first socialist government we'd had in 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 ontario that sent a, a shudder through the economy, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a, a shudder that was not justified, but sure. but there was great fear about what will this really pro-labor government do to the economy. And it turned out that, uh, you know, they were worried about- Labor hated him at the end <laughs> of it, didn't they? Yeah, it, 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 the economy was not in peril. Um, uh, I, I think that uh, most- the economy generally is more powerful than the governments that are that yeah. are in power. Uh, I think people always commend 
you know, Paul Martin, whom I think is a was a great finance minister. He said, Paul Martin slayed the federal deficit. Yeah. And I don't think it was Paul Martin, with great respect. I think any finance minister who was in that position during that economic era, mm -hmm. uh, unless they were utterly incompetent, <laughs> could have slayed the deficit, as it were. Mm -hmm. So, I, you know, uh, I think finance ministers and governments need to be careful and cautious when they are claiming responsibility for things. Yeah. Uh, the economic activity, if it's really positive, it drives a lot of government revenue, which then can be used to offset sure. the deficit, which is what happened during that those years. But Do you have any favorite moments from politics, personally? Hmm. Favorite moments from politics? Well, I, I guess I, ha I have a, uh, I have a few. Uh, the, and I'm trying not to be partisan. Uh, it, it may sound like I'm being partisan, sure. but, but uh, the the Trudeau election, uh, such a decisive election, uh, I think was uh, a really great moment uh, for me. I, I was really thrilled when. Kathleen Wynne won the the leadership of the Liberal Party and then went on to win the election. But mm -hmm. just that the party would would elect uh, a leader like Kathleen Wynne was, gave me great uh, great satisfaction and a sense that we are moving in, in the right direction. Whatever one thinks about Kathleen Wynne, yeah. uh, I'm I am one of her <laughs> one of her many fans. Maybe fewer fans than than what? in general, but uh, than than you know now than before but i'm a big fan what um <clears throat> let's talk about kathleen Wynne for a second sure um what does she need to do to to win the election this year yeah, that's a very good question and it's it is going to be an uphill battle and she is uh, i think in a way she's in a tough spot because the the liberals have been in power for, for a, a long very time. long time. Yeah. And there's almost this traditional kind of practice in politics that after a while, even if they're doing okay and everyone seems fine, they, there's a, almost a need to put somebody else in just to change things up a bit. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, Dalton McGinty left a few things behind that uh, a few... She's been paying for. That she's, that she's been paying for. Um I think what she needs to do is to do what she has always done, which is to get out there and work as I've never seen anyone work harder than, mm. than she does. And I think when people meet her and talk to her and get to know her, uh, it gives them a great sense of comfort. I've met very few people who are as informed on the issues, have as well-developed views on the issues, uh, but also can connect with the average voter in a way that few politicians can. Uh, and at the root of it all, this is going to sound almost maudlin, but I think what they will discover when they meet Kathleen Wynne is that she is a genuinely thoughtful and kind and generous person. Hmm. You think, well, what does that matter? She's the premier of the province. Sure. But I think somebody who, at the root of it, at the <laughs> when you strip everything else away, is a kind and thoughtful person who wants to do the right thing hmm. is an extraordinarily important criteria for uh, for leadership. 
So, you know, I, I don't think you can say that about every leader that we have had. Sure. And I want somebody like that in power, who's also, of course, intelligent and strong and confident, which, which she is. But, but she is a good person at the core. And who, should, uh, who should she be afraid of at this election? Hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a challenging one. Um, I don't think she needs to be that afraid yeah. of Andrea Horvath. Um, uh, I say with great respect to Andrea Horvath. I think she's done a very good job as leader of the NDP. Um, but for, on the conservative side, which is probably what you're asking me, who does she need to fear? Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm, I'm of two or three different minds on this because okay. at different times. I mean, Christine Elliott has tremendous experience, and uh, but she has not been successful in her earlier bids for leadership. And mm -hmm. I think those same issues that cause people to look elsewhere are probably still hanging around her neck as a hmm. millstone. Uh, Carolyn Mulroney, interesting candidate. On paper, she may be the most attractive candidate because she represents real change. Sure. You know, and it also, uh, you know, having a woman lead the Conservative Party would be a breakthrough for them, I think, mm -hmm. uh, and would help drag them into uh, into a, a more modern way of thinking about the world, yeah, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, but what I don't know is, can she actually perform and and carry it all the way through the election and get people onto her bandwagon? That will be the the real yeah uh, the real challenge. I'm. I'm. I just. I can't see Doug Ford being a threat. But I said the same thing about Donald Trump. I said the same thing about Rob Ford. So I'm probably not the best person to suggest <laughs> that Doug Ford is is not a viable candidate because he probably will be a viable candidate. Yeah. But if Doug Ford were there, I don't think we need to fear him as much because there's such a clear contrast between Doug Ford and Kathleen Wynne. It gives people a clear choice, one side or the other. If it's Carolyn Mulroney uh, and, and Kathleen Wynne or Christine Elliott and Kathleen Wynne, there's not as much daylight separating those two okay. leaders. And it makes it a little tougher, I think, for the voters to make, you know, to reach as clear a consensus. Yeah. Um, 1988, you leave politics <clears throat> and you start a PR firm. Like, why? <laughs> it, Actually, it seemed that you, you, you had this love affair with politics. Yes. Do you know what it was? And uh, in 1988, I was... Uh, Late 87, I was just leaving Bob Nixon's staff as finance minister. I'd been on his staff for two and a half years and four provincial budgets. I'd seen the budget cycle four times. Mm. Uh, and I looked around me and I saw people 10 years older than I was okay. still doing the same, the same job. Yeah. And I think there's a point in your political career where you either make a decision to stay in politics and that's going to be your life or you're going to go and do something else. And if you don't go and do something else soon enough, your marketability uh, mm. tends to decline, I think, or it plateaus, you know, 
and you get labeled with that term, oh, he's just a political hack. He's been around Queen's Park yeah. or Parliament Hill for, for 15 years. Yeah. Uh, and I think your value or your perceived value, more importantly, to the market is lower. Uh, so I, I sort of thought maybe this would be a good time for me for me to go. And I, I didn't start communications from then. I, oh. I worked for uh, uh, what became Hill and Knowlton. I worked for a big multinational That's PR right. agency right. first for for That's eight right. years. Learn yeah. and learned that that yeah. business. Why uh, PR though? What was what was attractive to you? Well, there? it wasn't. I didn't think of it as PR then. Okay. I was I started off as a government affairs public affairs okay. consultant. So okay. where my knowledge and understanding and how government works and the forces that shape decision making how that works uh, was fresh in my mind and there are clients who were interested mm. in understanding how government works and how okay. they might be better prepared to respond to government policy how they might make a better impression on government uh, so i was it was a direct, it was flowed directly from my experience on Parliament Hill and, and at Queen's Park. Oh. Uh, as time passed, it became more about communications, okay. which pushed me towards the PR side. Oh. Uh, and that's happened over, you know, five or six years. Um, I, I want to get back to, to, the, to the high road because um, <clears throat> it just dawned on me. There's a lot of engineering in, <laughs> in that book. Yes. Um, did your uh, engineering background at school play play a role? Absolutely, it did. <laughs> I tend to write about things that I know about. Okay. Uh, I'd rather not learn a whole new field and write about <laughs> it, which I, I want to be able to write with authority and conviction and yeah. authenticity. So I can, you can see that in my book. I, I wrote about federal politics. I yes. lived in that world. Yes, yes. Uh, I w wrote about... An engineering professor. I have an engineering degree, worked in that, well, at least in the university milieu. Um, he is a amateur chess player. I love the game of chess. He is a bit of a grammar aficionado. One might say a grammar Nazi. Uh, <laughs> I have a love of English, the English language and revere you know, observance of the rules of grammar. I'm going to be afraid to speak. No, not now. at all. No, no, please don't be. <laughs> But so you, there are pieces of me and pieces of my life strewn about the, those pages, although it's not autobiographical. It's just that those are things that I know about, worlds yeah. that I know about. There's a hovercraft in, yes, I was gonna in ask the you. novel. When I was 15, a classmate and I designed and built a full-sized hovercraft. Wow. And so I know far more than any sane individual ought to know about hovercrafts. Mm -hmm. And if you've read that novel now, you know more than any sane individual yes. ought to yeah. know about them. Yeah. Uh, in hindsight, I probably put a bit too much detail too about much the detail. hovercraft in there because I knew that much knew detail about it. Yeah. So, so that's, yeah, I just, I plumb the depths of my own experiences, my interests and my passions. I, you know, put them into a, into a, a hat and shake it all up and come up with a story that allows me to explore those areas that I know so well, but not from an autobiographical perspective. I'm not going to ask where, how well you know gentlemen's clubs, but I will ask this. Um, like the professor, he was a reluctant politician. Have you ever thought about running yourself? Uh, I have thought about running, not for a long time. Uh, 
I do want really good people to run. And okay. our problems will never end if, if in, you... <laughs> in politics if good people sure, sure. don't run. Okay, fair. Having said that, I think we also need to think about how can we best make our contribution mm. to improving our democracy and our political system. And I'm thinking I can be more effective mm -hmm. uh, as, a, as a writer than, than as a, a politician. So I, I am happy to entertain Senate appointments at okay. any time, though. <laughs> but I think, you know, I probably don't have uh, the stomach for it, but I will work very hard for those I, I believe in and who I think represent right. the future of politics. Um, <laughs> how did you get into writing? Ah, that's a good question. I... I, I it was quite late. I didn't write my first novel until I was 45 years old. Mm. So I had been writing professionally all my life, whether it's speeches on Parliament Hill and at Queen's Park or mm -hmm. communications plans or news releases or, you know, other sure. documents. I write almost every day. Um, but in my 20s, I would say, I became an avid fiction reader. I didn't read a lot of fiction in, until in my mid-20s. Mm -hmm. I read mainly, because I was involved in politics, I read mainly political uh, nonfiction. I read uh, biographies, I read history. And I realized one day that I had a huge gap in my cultural understanding by not reading very much fiction. And I started reading novels. And I, I started reading funny novels and I realized okay. I'm home. I didn't know there were funny novels. Yeah. This is this is what I want to read. All right. And then I decided I wanted to try to write one. So that's it took me a while. I you know, I wrote a handful of short stories over 20 years. Like I mean four short stories okay. over 20 years. I yeah. never sent anywhere just to explore this kind of emerging interest I had in creative Did writing. Did you take classes at all? Or? I took one class at the University of Toronto School of Continuing Studies in their creative writing program. Okay. I don't even remember what it was. It was probably short story writing or something. Sure. Uh, I actually teach in that program now, which may say something about their teaching standards. That, uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, I've taught there for about the last eight or nine years. Um, but I just decided I wanted to try to write a novel. Uh, I loved language so much and, and literature and bookstores. I just wanted to try. And The Best Laid Plans was my very fortuitous first attempt. Mm-hmm. So I don't have other novels sitting around in desk drawers that I abandoned. I, I just wrote the best laid plans and that uh, seemed to go reasonably well. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, <laughs> it, uh, it ended up being, well, you, you, you did the podcasting and the book was released. Um, it became a, a miniseries on CBC. Right. Uh, a play? Was became a, play? a stage musical. Stage, a stage musical. Yeah, which was a st in Vancouver, uh, which was okay. wonderful. Uh, it did didn't you, start off so well, the, the novel, because I couldn't find anyone interested in publishing it. Did you fully complete writing? Write yes. It? Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I wrote the whole novel, yeah. and I spent a year sending out you know, plot synopses, sample chapters, and query letters to literary agents across the country and into yeah. the United States. And then I sat back and I waited for the feeding frenzy to ensue over my <laughs> debut blockbuster novel. Yeah. And after 12 months of diligently following up, wow, I did not receive even a single rejection letter. 
Not even a rejection Not letter. Not even a rejection letter. I did make a big enough impression on the traditional publishing establishment to generate an automated rejection letter. <laughs> and it was because I'd written a satirical novel of Canadian politics. Not what anyone sure. who knows about publishing would counsel a, a first-time writer yeah. to write about because there's probably not a great market for it. So that's when I podcast the novel to try and build an audience for it on my own. And I I self-published the novel originally. Okay. And my life in as a writer changed when that self-published novel won the Leacock Medal that year. Uh, the Leacock Medal, Stephen yeah. Leacock Medal for Humor, which immediately- As a self-published novel. Yes, as a sel it was self-published. So uh, I immediately landed a literary agent, and a week later after we won- won the medal, I signed with McClellan and Stewart where I've been ever since, which led to Canada Reads, where it you know, won Canada Reads in 2011, which was a huge blessing for any novelist. Which was how many years after? Uh, two, two and a half years oh, after. okay. All right. All right. Yep. So it was- you So know, not too long. I, my, uh, my second novel was already out then, yeah. but uh, Canada Reads doesn't always pick- No, they don't you know, always pick- they, Whatever their yeah. topic is that year. Or, mm -hmm. Uh, so that was wonderful. So that that is the novel that 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 keeps on giving. It it will always be my best selling uh, novel. Yeah, and your favorite? Uh, I don't know that it's my favorite okay. to be honest. Interestingly, I have an incredibly soft spot in my heart for it because sure. it, it changed my life as a writer. But uh, and I love all my novels. Kind of like asking someone to Children. which is your favorite child. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But uh, today it's that one. <laughs> that's right. But I am very fond of, in particular, my third novel, Up and Down. Uh, okay, I haven't read that one. Okay, well, right. there you can add that to your I'm, list. I'm going to. Well, I got three more books to there go. go. <laughs> I, 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 I want to go back and read uh, Best Laid Plans. Um, but yeah, that's fantastic. Um, you know, we, we already talked about how much is true in, in, in these books and stuff. Um, you, you, you must have thoughts around... Canadian infrastructure, um, you know, especially these days when we're talking about slashing spending, um, when yes. we do, when we, you know, some people want to spend money, some people don't. We're talking about, you know, um, uh, climate change. Um, how important is is infrastructure? And, so, and some people just think it's 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 the roads and the bridges. Right. It's it's much more than that. I yeah, think. I I think you've hit upon an issue that is. Not very exciting, not very sure. sexy in political mm -hmm. terms, but it is, I think, essential to our economic well-being as a nation. And you might say that my second novel, The High Road, is a novel about infrastructure decay. Mm. Who would write a novel about infrastructure <laughs> decay? But I did. It's that important of, of an issue. And uh, I think we lose sight of how important it is. We think about how important it is to get rid of the deficit. Yeah. And in that novel, if you've just read it, you remember me talking about in the novel, you know, you haven't slayed the deficit if you've simply transformed it from a monetary or financial deficit into an infrastructure deficit. Mm -hmm. So yes, our, our books are balanced, but our healthcare system is crumbling or our roads and our ports and our power stations are in disrepair and will cost so much more to restore mm -hmm. uh, because we didn't maintain them. We, that's where we cut the deficit for. Uh, I think that's short-sighted policy. 
And, you know, I don't, I don't think we should mind paying taxes to ensure that we have a sound and solid infrastructure, water systems, roads, uh, airports, power grids, uh, and not to mention our healthcare system, universities, and schools. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is what makes our economy go. Uh, and if we neglect those in the name of, of cutting the deficit, that is a very short-sighted, narrow-minded, uh, asinine <laughs> approach, I would say. Uh, but it's tough to go and campaign on, we need better infrastructure. Yeah. I mean, it's not something that people can rally around. Yeah. Uh, yet it is, it, it's so important. Um, well, I think... Yeah, I think One Brother Shy was, was a, I don't know if that was the first book of yours I read or the second one. Um, it was only after I read the book that I, that I found out that y you have a twin brother. Yes. Um, <laughs> I'm curious, which brother are you in, the, in, in that story? <laughs> are you, the, are you the, the, the quiet, shy one? You know, I, I, the answer is neither of them, okay. really. Okay, all right. Um, it isn't. It's only autobiographical to the extent that I <laughs> happen twins. to have an identical twin brother. Okay. But if I'd written a novel based on my brother and me, yeah, uh, it would not have been nearly as interesting as the novel I wrote. <laughs> All right. Um, we are very close. We are very much alike. Uh, but uh, I, I just wanted to explore what it's like to be a twin, but I needed to cook up a much more interesting story sure. okay. than, than my own. So I wouldn't say that, we, well, there's a little bit of me in all those characters. Fair, uh, yeah. uh, and you might argue that in, in that novel, the shy one uh, was shy for a particular reason. That's right. Something had happened to him. That's right. And was probably much more like, mm -hmm. would have been ended up much more like his brother and probably still will end up much more like his brother yeah. as he recovers from that event that yeah. turned him into a bit of a, a social recluse. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, you know, get, getting back to, to polls apart, you know, we talked about me too and, and times up um, in, in, in the a, well, I guess it's the age of Trump. Uh, these days, and, and not just in the U.S., but I think it's sort of it's 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 bled into into Canada, and and I think the forces that got Trump elected, you know, we could have seen that in England, sure, uh, maybe with the Brexit vote. Yes. Um, but you could see it in Toronto and Rob Ford's election yeah. when he was mayor. Yeah. Um, like, wh what does that mean? Like, what 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 have we? Are we are we are we a meaner people? Are we a meaner species? Are we um, do we not care? You know, when when tragedies happen, we 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 seem to care a lot. But you know, if if nothing's going on, do do we care at all about our neighbors? Yeah, it's. I hope we do. Uh, I think there's lots of evidence to suggest that we don't care as much. And I, I don't know how it happened. I'm not a, a sociologist, uh, but. Now, I think back to the excesses of the 80s and where uh, people, where greed seemed to uh, <laughs> replace generosity yeah. as a, a driving factor in, in society. I'm wondering whether that was where the seeds were sown for a much more inward-looking, insular, I care about me 
uh, and let's get rid of government, let's pull yourselves up by our own bootstraps and all of that. I wonder whether the seeds for that uh, movement that has elected Rob Ford and Donald Trump and, and others, uh, whether that's where it began. But I also think these things are, are cyclical. Hmm. And uh, I think there's less support now for the Trump ideology, if you could call it that, sure. than there was a year and a half ago when he was uh, elected. Uh, and the longer he stays there, I think <laughs> the less support he, he is going to have. So I think these things come and go. The pendulum swings. Yeah. And it's now swung out to the right, mm -hmm. and it might hang there for a little bit for maybe a couple of elections. But I think inevitably it will swing back because I think there is this human capacity for uh, caring for our neighbors, for looking out for other people, and and you know just a, a sense of kindness. That, uh, that that will return. It, it will be restored at some point. Mm. The pendulum will swing back uh, and Trump will help it swing back. He will. He won't, <laughs> he won't like that. He but, won't know. And he won't intend to, but that's what's happening. Um, you're st you still have your PR cuts. I guess there's a partnership, but you, yeah. you're, you're still working. At I am. I, I still, uh, I, I'm... I'm on salary four days a week, <laughs> so I can afford to be a Canadian novelist on the can fifth you, day. Can, on the fifth day, you're the novelist. <laughs> yeah. um, even, even with all the success, I was one of the questions I was going to ask you is: Are are you, are you still there? You know what? What? Um, you know, to someone like me, it's like you're, you know, Canada's. So, so the girls that were in here before we were saying he's he's Canada's, you know, Stephen Leacock now. Jeez. Oh, um, <laughs> um, what, what what keeps you going with uh, with with your your full time gig? Uh, the need to keep going. Okay, with the full time enough. gig. It's, you know, it, it it funds the writing it, in a way. It does, and and I have been. I'm very happy with with uh, whatever success I've had, and uh, I'm thrilled that my books are being read. Mm -hmm. But even even those who are selling lots of books. Mm -hmm. It is still a tough way to make a living in this country. The inexorable economics of publishing makes it very difficult for all, only writers at the very, I mean, Margaret Atwood, mm -hmm. Joseph Boyden, mm -hmm. those writers, and even, I mean, Joseph Boyden still teaches. Mm. Uh, and uh, it is very hard to fund your life and your yeah. family's life yeah. strictly from from book sales it's just it's just very hard yeah and i and i didn't mean to insinuate that you're not enjoying your no 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 your no. Own business yeah no no i i and i do like i do like the day job yeah uh, it is it, it's nice to have that it's a nice uh, diversion uh but i've been doing it for a long time and i <laughs> i would like to i would like to write more it just is uh it's just hard to make it all work and to balance it all well, hopefully that Senate appointment comes. I, that would be nice. <laughs> that would be terrific. Um, you know, as as we as we wind down, um, not including yours because they're they're your children. You know, these these six books coming on to seven. Um, what is, you know, who's your favorite author? Like, who do you read? Uh, what's your what's what are your some of your favorite books? Oh, that that's a good question. And we you know we have <coughs> so many uh, favorite writers. Uh, uh, I 
I really like, I do like Alice Munro and Margaret Atwood. Um, they don't write the books that I love the most, okay. but I find them to be extraordinary writers. Mm -hmm. uh, They're I'm, not humorous. No, although <laughs> Margaret Atwood has a sharp. pretty good sense of humor, very yeah. sharp. But I'm a big Robertson Davies fan and mm. a big Mordecai Richler fan. Okay. Uh, and uh, Paul Quarrington, uh, who left us all too soon, uh, I think three or four years ago now. It's just, it happens so quickly, you know, time passes. Uh, but John Irving is, is among my favorite authors. Mm -hmm. Uh, I like to think of John Irving as my mentor. Okay. He doesn't know he that. Doesn't. <laughs> he doesn't know that. Yeah, I have met yeah. him. Okay. Okay. Uh, I'm sure he won't recall, but we have met. Uh, <laughs> but he taught me long before I started writing, but he taught me the power of juxtaposing humor and pathos and sometimes rubbing them right up against one another. All right. And you can sort of see that in some of my books where it's a, you hope you hope they're funny, and then all of a sudden something really sad happens. Mm. Wow! <laughs> uh, and I think that's a powerful trip to take the reader on. And John Irving is teaching me about that with every book that I read of his. Terry, thanks so much for uh, for coming in. Delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, where, if people want to uh, to see what you're up to, is is there uh, yes. a, a place where they can sort of keep in touch with the activities? Absolutely. I, my, my website blog is terryfollis.com. Uh, and my, I have a schedule of appearances there. If All anyone right. interested in, in coming out and listening to me read or hearing me talk about the books, which okay. I do, uh, all my first six novels are all available as complete chapter by chapter audio podcasts on iTunes or on my, on my blog. Awesome. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, I would encourage you, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, to subscribe, rate, and review. That will really help this podcast be discovered. Uh, for more awesome conversations, uh, not just here, but but elsewhere, you can check out girthradio.com, uh, which is the home of this show. And for other interesting, similar conversations, you can check out uh, episode 106 with Ed Keenan of the Toronto Star, or episode 104, which was my conversation with first-time MP Arif Virani. Or episode 99 with uh, former Leafs boss and current city builder uh, Richard Petty. Uh, I am on Twitter at Kareem Kanji. I forgot to ask you this, uh, Terry. When's, when's the next book coming out? Next book coming out is scheduled for the spring of 2019. And, and, and awesome. So 2019, we'll look forward to that. That's great. Thank and again, you. thank you so much. Thanks for having me.